The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. And I would use this to introduce the second, the next theme on which I want to speak, the question of errors in the Bible. And I have spent time on these early chapters of Genesis because these are the questions and the chapters that are under dispute so much today. People do not believe these early chapters of Genesis, and they do not hesitate to dismiss them as being in error. These are the grossest errors that are found in the Bible, we are told, and I think if we can satisfy ourselves with regard to these chapters, uh, there's nothing else that really should give us a tremendous amount of difficulty. Why do we discuss this question of errors in the Bible? I want to go right into this other subject, if I may, and perhaps tie the two together. We hear it often said that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, the Bible is the infallible word of God. Now, there are many people who simply do not like those words. For one thing, they say that they are negative. Well, I don't think we should be afraid of <coughs> something because it is negative, not necessarily. Have you ever seen these signs with electric tension wires that say something like this, 20,000 volts, hands off or keep off? That's a negative statement. I don't quite know how you would express that positively. But by the time you'd figured it out positively, you'd have touched the wire and it'd be too late. There are times when a negative statement is more effective than a positive statement. Now, our Lord used a negative statement. He said the scripture cannot be broken, and that is negative, and that's effective. So that a negative statement is not necessarily to be depreciated. There are times when it has to be used. The Ten Commandments are negative. I heard them criticized recently because they were too negative. Thou shalt not kill. That is too negative. Well, I think there are times when the negative statement is far more forceful than a positive statement. And so this objection is not a very serious objection to this term. But why have these terms grown up? Why do we say that the Bible is inerrant and infallible? What leads us to make such statements as that? Well, I think we are brought to statements like that because unbelievers challenge the truthfulness of what is stated in the Bible. They say that the Bible is in error, that the Bible has made mistakes. And in answer to that, we say that is not the case. The Bible has not made mistakes. Now, why do we say that? Well, in the first place, if the Scripture is God-breathed, that means the Scripture is the Word of God, and you simply cannot say that God has said anything that is not true, that God has deceived us in any way. Uh, some men say this is an added statement that the scripture is inerrant. But I think that to refuse to say that the scripture is inerrant 
and infallible is something like saying, I believe that Mr. X is a man, but I'm not willing to say that he has a head. Uh, when you say that a person is a man, it simply follows that he has a head. That isn't an inference that you logically uh, bring forth later. If you say that a person is a man, you assume that he has a head. If you say that the Bible is the word of God, of course it's inerrant and it's infallible. Now to say that it is inerrant means that it is without error, that all that it teaches is the truth. To say that it is infallible means that it does not deceive. It's almost the same thing as saying that it is inerrant. And when people say those are difficult words and those words require explanation, I would say very well, the only way to handle these words is to take up the questions one by one as they are raised. If someone objects to calling the Bible inerrant because that term might be misunderstood, I would say that any predicate that you give to the scriptures may be under misunderstood. If you say that the scriptures are complete, completely trustworthy, what do you mean by that? And the only way you can answer that is to take it up point by point when people raise questions and objections. And not only does this follow from the concept that the Bible is the word of God, but our Lord expressly said the scripture cannot be broken. Now you remember that he appealed to one of the Psalms in that connection. He spoke of it as the law. And he said, ye have read, ye are judges. That he read from the Psalm. And then he said in the course of his argument, the scripture cannot be broken. And what he meant, I think, is this, that whatever the scripture says has a binding character and cannot be contravened. It is true. It is trustworthy. You cannot destroy the teaching of the scripture. The scripture cannot be broken. Now, it is a general statement. He did not say this particular scripture cannot be broken, but the scripture cannot be broken. That is scripture. Whatever is scripture cannot be broken. This statement applies not only to the quotation that our Lord made in John 10, but it applies to everything that is scripture. Scripture cannot be broken. In the light of that, it seems to me that it requires a great deal of nerve, really, to say that there is error in the Bible. Now, this matter of errors in the Bible, <coughs> I think the best way of handling this is to take up the individual errors that people bring forth. And I want to say just this at the outset. No man can be expected to explain everything in the Bible. And I'm sure you can bring up difficulties that I cannot answer and others cannot answer. Oh, there's this question of the blind men at Jericho, for example. Were there two blind men? Was there one blind man? Were they at the gate of Jericho as our Lord went in or as he came out? What are we going to say about that? Well, you know, sometimes people bring that matter up as though they had discovered it for the first time in their lives. Origen had that very same difficulty. And this has been a difficulty that has been known all along throughout the history of the church. 
Uh, Matthew Henry, I believe it was, was it not said that uh, his answer to the difficulty was something like this, that if there were two, there was certainly one, and uh, maybe that helps us there. I don't know. But uh, it may be that the one account speaks of his entering the old city of Jericho and the one that speaks of his leaving the city refers to the other city of Jericho. There was a double city apparently at that time. That's one possible explanation. Now, if you will look in the commentaries, you will find that quite a number of suggested explanations are given. And may I just use that to make a few general remarks about this whole thing. When you say there is an error in the Bible, you have to make sure that the writer said something which actually is contrary to fact. When you consider the intention of the writer, you may find that there is no error at all. Furthermore, in respect to the gospel narratives, you have to realize that different writers may say something from a different standpoint and that everything may be true. Now, it may be that one of the gospel writers is more concerned to focus attention upon the one blind beggar and that the other writer tells us that there were two there. There is not necessarily a contradiction. uh, Suppose now that each one of you were to give a report upon these meetings. I'm sure that each one of us might do it a little bit differently. Uh, Somebody might say about the evening meeting that the room was full last night. Now that statement is true, but looked at from another standpoint, that statement was false. There was still room to get more people in this room. What do you mean full? Do you mean that all the benches were filled? Or do you mean that all the benches and every bit of standing room and space in the room was filled? Now, if it's that latter, obviously that wasn't correct. And if somebody went out and said this room was full last night and he meant by that that every inch of space was taken up, that would be an error, would it not? But we ask, what does the, writer, what does the person mean when he says the room was full last night? Well, he means, I suppose, that nearly every seat was taken. And when he says that, that is not an error, is it? We have to find out what his intention was, you see. And when somebody says the room was full last night, you don't turn on him and say you're not telling the truth, that there was room up around the ceiling or anything like that left over. Not at all. You understand his intention. And that's the way it is with us. All of our statements have to be taken in the light of what we intend to say. And if you do that, it's an entirely different thing from imposing upon our statements a meaning that we think they should have. Now, when the rich young ruler comes to Christ and he says, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You will notice that the evangelists give that statement in different fashion. One of them says, if I may render it literally, having done what shall I obtain eternal life? The other asks, 
what shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now there are some people who jump on that and they say there is a contradiction, there is an error. He couldn't have said both. He couldn't have used the participle poiesis to having done what shall I obtain eternal life and at the same time have said what shall I do that I may obtain eternal life. The, young, the rich young ruler couldn't have done both of those, we're told. So that's an error. Well, let's look at that just a bit more closely and see if that is an error. In the first place, the rich young ruler didn't say either of those things. He evidently spoke Aramaic to Christ. And what we have in the Gospels is a translation, is it not? And one Gospel renders the Aramaic in one way, and another gospel renders it in a different way. We do not have the precise words of that rich young ruler. And our Lord may have answered him in Aramaic. It is possible that there is translation in the gospels. This is one possibility. But suppose he did speak Greek. The question is, does the gospel writer say, I am going to give the precise words of the rich young ruler? Or is his intention to give the gist of what the rich young ruler said? Now, suppose someone says to me, I want to see so-and-so, and I come in here and meet you and say that Mr. A out there says he wants to see you. Now, have I misrepresented him? His precise words were, I want to see Mr. B, let us say. And I come in here and I say to Mr. B, Mr. A wants, says he wants to see you. He didn't actually utter the words, he wants to see you. Have I committed an error? Have I deceived you by that? Now, if I were to say to you, Mr. A, use these precise words, and then I paraphrase, that would be wrong, would it not? But if I give you the gist of what Mr. A says, I have accurately represented him. Now, we do that all the time, do we not? And we don't accuse one another of committing an error if we give the sum and substance of a message rather than the precise words. Now, what right have we got to do that with the Bible? And you see, if you will look at the intention of the writer very often, you will find out that there is no error. The Jewish rabbis used to have a great time discussing this kind of an error that is found in the book of Proverbs, they said. In one verse in the 26th chapter you read, Answer a fool according to his folly. And then in the very next verse you read, Answer not a fool according to his folly. Well, that certainly has to be a contradiction. One says one thing, the other says the very opposite. They can't both be right. Now you see, when I talk that way, I'm engaging in rationalism. I'm refusing to see what the Scripture says. And the Scripture gives a reason for each one of those things. And some of the older rabbis said plainly that's a contradiction. Now, I would think offhand that the writer wouldn't put a palpable contradiction like that right down there where everybody could see it. 
answer a fool according to his folly, answer not a fool according to his folly. What on earth would be the point in doing a thing like that? It certainly looks as though there's a contradiction. There's a formal contradiction, yes. But is that an error in Scripture? Well, all you have to do is see what the writer intends, and he expresses a profound truth from two sides. Answer a fool according to his folly. That is, if a man says something that is foolish, he deserves an answer that is in accordance with that. We know that. And he deserves an answer that is suitable for him, for what he is saying. But answer not a fool according to his folly means don't you be the same kind of person. Don't you give a foolish answer. Don't you do the very thing that he is doing. Now, both of those are true. And you certainly can't call that an error in the Bible. But that, you see, is not the kind of error that people are really troubled about today. Uh, I want to mention the sort of thing that I think does trouble people when they find out enough about it to know that it's in the Bible. And that is the mention of King Tirhaka. Now, I don't know how many of you have been lying awake nights worrying about King Tirhaka, but I am told that there is a very grave error concerning King Tirhaka. Tirhaka was a, an Ethiopian king who reigned over Egypt in what is called the Ethiopian dynasty. He was a contemporary of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. And you remember from the 36th and 37th chapters of Isaiah, uh, chapters that are repeated again in 2 Kings, that when Sennacherib had been attacking Jerusalem, he heard that Tirhaka, king of Egypt, had come out against him. Well, now, what's the matter with that statement? We are told, because Tirhaka has left some documents, we are told by one scholar that Tirhaka must have been at this time about nine or ten years of age, and it's rather difficult to imagine a ten-year-old boy leading an army against the Assyrian king. Well, <coughs> that has been repeated by a number of scholars. And without going into details, I simply want to say that some of the statements they have made, one man says this is stated over and over again, which is not true, it is not the case, that that has been repeated, that it would be impossible for a child that age to engage in battle and certainly to lead an army. Now, what can we say about that? One recent writer on this subject has simply said this is an anachronism in the Bible. It's a slip-up here, an unimportant one, but it's a slip-up. But an Egyptologist has gone into this subject far more thoroughly and has shown rather conclusively, I think, in a technical article, that actually King Tirhaka would have been some 20 years of age at this time. And if that were the case, he could very easily have led the army against Assyria. Now he is mentioned as king, and I think that that is a proleptic mention. He is mentioned proleptically as the king of Egypt. You see, there really is no error. I am not saying that there is no difficulty here. There may be. But I do not think anybody today knows enough to say definitely that Isaiah made a mistake in mentioning Tirhaka as the king of Ethiopia at that time. 
You see, enough evidence is on hand to show us that there is a possible explanation. And I believe we should remember this fact. When a difficulty in the Bible is brought before us, if there is a suggested solution, we have no right to say that there is a positive error. It is very easy for us, living over 2,000 years later than biblical times in the time of Christ, to look back and say, here is an error in something. So many supposed errors, you see, have been shown to be not errors at all. It was not so long ago that men were saying that Moses could not have written the Pentateuch because writing was not known even in his day. But nobody would dare to make that statement today, and yet I wonder whether they would or not. I have met college students who have asked in all seriousness whether writing was known in Moses' day or not. Well, we know very well that writing was known many, many years before the time of Moses. There are highly developed law codes, such as the Code of Hammurabi, the Lipit Ishtar Code. There are highly developed writings from the Sumerians that far antedate the time of Moses, and that objection is no longer raised. And when we see these objections going by the board so often, I think we must be very cautious about maintaining that there are actual errors in the Scripture itself. Now, I want to mention one or two others, if I may. In the 27th chapter of Matthew, there is a reference, and I believe it's the sixth verse, to Jeremiah the prophet. This is concerning Judas, and there is mention in there of the purchase of the potter's field. Now the argument goes something like this. Matthew mentions Jeremiah. In the King James Version, it is Jeremy. Actually, we are told, this quotation comes from Zechariah. And here is a clear evidence. And then very often they go on and say, it's only the slip-up of one name, so it doesn't really matter very much. Now, I'm not so sure about those consequences. If Matthew, under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, slipped up here, and an actual error came forth from the Lord, for that's where it would have come from, how do we know that there aren't other errors in Scripture? But the argument goes that the word Zechariah should be there and not the word Jeremiah. This is plainly an error, we are told. Now, I would say, and for some reason, this particular difficulty seems to trouble people a great deal. I hear it raised almost all the time, and it's always assumed it should be Zechariah and not Jeremiah, as Matthew has it. If you will look back at the passages in, Je in Zechariah, you will find that very obviously some phrases which Matthew uses are taken from Zechariah. That is, there's no doubt about that at all. On the other hand, the whole passage is not taken from Zechariah. The price of the potter's field that is mentioned at the end is not taken from Zechariah at all, but is taken from Jeremiah. There are two chapters in, Je in Jeremiah that speak of the potter's field. So it is not true to say that this is simply a quotation 
taken right over from the book of Zechariah. That is not the case at all. At best, it seems to be a composite, and certain words are definitely taken from Jeremiah that are not taken from Zechariah. Now, I believe the Syriac translation has the word Zechariah instead of Jeremiah. How did the word Jeremiah ever get into Matthew? Well, it may be that an abbreviation was used and that a copyist later spelled the word out as Jeremiah instead of as Zechariah. That is one possibility. Another possible explanation is that the old Jews regarded Jeremiah as standing at the head of all the prophets and that what Matthew is doing is simply saying, in effect, that this quotation is from the prophets. Now, our Lord did that on the walk to Emmaus when he spoke of the things in the Psalms concerning himself. He used the term the Psalms in order to include the third uh, section of the Hebrew canon, and he meant to include far more than the actual Psalter. It may be that that is what Matthew is doing, that in referring to Jeremiah, he is simply referring to the prophetical books. That Jeremiah is thought to have stood at the head of the prophets at least at one time, and that in speaking of Jeremiah, all that our Lord was doing was simply saying, in effect, this quotation comes from the prophets. If that were what he was doing, you see, that would explain the composite nature of the quotation very well, and there would really be no error then at all. Now, there are other possible solutions. I am inclined to think, however, that the word does go back to the original and that Matthew himself, or if not Matthew had used the word, some copyist at a very early time substituted the word Jeremiah for Zechariah. Personally, I am inclined to think that is what happened. But I cannot prove that, and I may be wrong. What I would like to say is this that either Jeremiah or Zechariah is correct. For there is a certain sense in which this quotation does come from Jeremiah. If you will look at this in the Bible and compare these quotations phrase by phrase, I've done that in my book, Thy Word is Truth, if you will do that, you will see that you can very correctly say that the quotation is from Jeremiah. On the other hand, you can equally well say that it is from Zechariah, for certain phrases are taken from Zechariah. Now that, I think, is really the situation. It is possible that Matthew intended to say that this quotation was from Jeremiah, and if that is what his intention was, that is perfectly in accordance with the fact. You can very legitimately say that. It may, on the other hand, have been that his intention was to say that the quotation was from Zechariah and that he originally used the term Zechariah, and if he did that very well, then the quotation was from Zechariah, and later on some copyist, for some reason or other, possibly because an abbreviation had been used, inserted the term Jeremiah. Now, I think I've given you a fair picture of the evidence in this one particular case. But when we realize the difficulty of what we are dealing with, can anybody really say there is a positive error there in the Scripture, that there is a positive error in Matthew? 
I think that requires a tremendous amount of knowledge, more than any human being possesses. No, I don't think for a minute we can say that, that there is a positive error in Matthew. We must remember, you see, that when we are dealing with the scriptures, and when we are dealing with any ancient document, let us say even Homer or Herodotus, that there may be difficulties which are not necessarily errors. We know so little about biblical times that we do not know enough to make the positive declaration that there are errors. Now, there are some of these difficulties that we cannot understand. There are some to which we cannot give a satisfactory answer. <coughs> there are some that seem to defy explanation at this time. Uh, I have never seen, to my entire satisfaction, a complete working out of the harmony of the four accounts of the Lord's Supper. I think difficulties still remain. And perhaps that is true with the resurrection accounts also. That does not mean that there is positive error. It may mean, you see, that one evangelist does not recite everything that others have recited. It may mean that one looks at things from a standpoint that is different from that of others. Uh, there have been some cases in connection with the chronology where it has been maintained that there is positive error in the chronology of the Hebrew kings. Now we know that Professor Thiele has worked this chronology out so that he has really obviated almost all of the difficulties. There are a few passages that remain which cause difficulty, but I think now it can be safely seen that the difficulty lies in our lack of knowledge of these particular cases. He has shown, however, that the chronology of the Hebrew kings does make sense, that it does fit together, and that there really is no error in connection therewith. There is, however, a different type of problem, and I would like to mention this as our last consideration. This is one that is often brought up. It is found in Stephen's speech in the seventh chapter of Acts. We are told that Stephen made some very definite errors when he referred to the call of Abram. And the basic point seems to be this that Stephen says that after the death of his father Terah, Abram left Haran. And uh, that might seem all right, but when you go back to Genesis, you realize that if you add up the chronology that is given there in Genesis, why it would seem that Terah must have lived on some 75 years past the time when Abram left Haran. And so we are told here is an error. We are told that, my friends. Believe me, this is brought up as one of the errors of chronology in the Bible. Now, when you turn to that seventh chapter of Acts, you read that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he spake with the wisdom of the Spirit. And as he spake, his antagonists gnashed their teeth and turned upon him and stoned him. Now, what was it that caused the antagonists to stone Stephen? Was it that he had made errors of fact in Hebrew history? No, that didn't seem to bother them at all. They weren't concerned with that at all. What they were concerned with was that Stephen was accusing them of the death of Jesus Christ. And that was the thing that bothered them. They were antagonistic to Stephen. Now, if he had stood there and he had made errors in Hebrew history, 
They would have attacked him right then and there. I find it impossible to believe that those antagonistic Jews would have allowed Stephen to get by with actual errors in his statements. Had he done that, they would have been waiting to pounce upon the opportunity. They evidently found no fault in what Stephen said, no flaw in his presentation of Hebrew history. And by the way, it is interesting to notice that Philo, the Jewish writer, <coughs> gives us a similar account as does Stephen. Now Stephen says then of Abram that Abram departed Haran after the death of his father Terah. When you go back to Genesis, however, you find that in the 11th chapter, Terah was 70 years of age when he begat the three, Abram, Haran, and Nahor. And then he lived 75 years till he would have been 145 years of age. And at that time, Haran, uh, uh, when he was 75 years old, Abram left Haran. And Terah, all told, according to Genesis, lived 205 years so that he would have lived on for some time after the death, after the departure of Abram from Haran. It seems, therefore, that there is a, an error as far as the chronology is concerned. Stephen says after the death of his father Terah, but according to Genesis, Terah lived 205 years. Abram was 75 years on his departure from Haran, he was born, supposedly, when Terah was 70 years of age, so that he, uh, Terah would have been 145 years at the departure of Abram from Haran. Let me say that again. According to Genesis, Terah would have been 145 years of age when Abram left Haran. According to Stephen in Acts 7, Abram left Haran after the death of his father. Now... Every introduction, of course, to the Old Testament brings this forth, and this is set forth as a clear error in the Scriptures. Well, what can we say about this? If you take it just as I presented it, you might say, well, there is an error there. Now, some evangelicals maintain this position. They say that Stephen made a mistake, that Stephen was not speaking as an inspired person, but he stood up there and he simply got his history mistaken, and which is an easy enough thing for people to do. I don't suppose there's any one of us that ever stands up and makes a speech, but what some slip has come out. And Luke, however, in recording the speech, was inspired of the Holy Spirit, and Luke gave us an accurate, trustworthy account of the speech, even of the error that Stephen made. Well, as I said a moment ago, that doesn't seem to be a very satisfactory solution. If Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're told that he was, it isn't very likely that the Holy Spirit would have permitted him to make an obvious error in his speech. And again, I would say, if he had made this obvious error in the speech, I think it would have given the Jews the very opportunity that they wanted. To me, it's a very significant thing that the Jews did not pounce on Stephen because of some error in his Hebrew history. It's very difficult to believe that he would have made such a gross error as that. So I don't believe that that is any kind of a solution. That is a proposed solution.
right for us to say sometimes that uh, we may not understand all that is involved rather than to adopt a solution which really does not solve anything. And I think that solution is entirely too easy. You might say that and get away from the difficulty, but I think you get yourself into greater difficulties. You simply have to face up to what is said about Stephen in the seventh chapter of Acts, that he was filled with the Holy Ghost. And the reason why his antagonists turned upon him was not because of errors of chronology in his speech, but because he accused them of being responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. No, I think we have to look elsewhere for a solution to this problem. Now, one suggestion, I think, would be this. When we look at the statement that, Ab that Tira was 70 years old when he begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, are we to understand that as meaning that the three were born in one year? Were they triplets? Is that really what the scripture is telling us there? I don't think that's the meaning of it at all. And I don't think that the order of statement necessarily implies that Abram was the firstborn. Abram is mentioned there because he is the prominent descendant of Terah. I think we may say that. And what the passage seems to say is that after his 70th year, Terah begot these sons. Now, if you do that, then you can work it out so that Abram might actually have been born when Terah was 145 years of age, and Terah might have died at 205 in Haran, and then Abram left Haran. And if you do that, the thing works out fine. Now, is there any objection to that kind of a defense? It's a perfectly possible explanation, and it's adopted by a good many. I know some people who say there's no problem here. They simply accept that, that explanation. But you and I might say, when a man is 145 years of age, that's a little bit old for having children. And you remember that Abram himself wondered whether he would have children when he was a good deal less old than that. And Sarah was past the time of bearing. If Abram had been born himself when he was, when his father was that old, would he have thought it so strange that he himself might have had a son when he was a hundred years old? He himself was only a hundred years old. So here again, you see, I'm not sure this is the answer to the problem. It might be. I don't know. This is a possible solution, which has satisfied a number. Now, there is another solution, and that is that there were two calls given, one in Ur and one in Haran, and that Genesis may not be reciting events in chronological order. Now, if that is the case, if Genesis is not reciting these events in chronological order, then, again, our difficulty really vanishes. And another possible solution is to say that what Acts means after the death of his father is simply after the account of the death of the father is given in Genesis. And if that is what Stephen meant, 
and that was a widely held view, and it may have been in the light of what Philo says, if that is the explanation, then again, you see, there is a possible explanation. Now, I've mentioned a number of these, and there are a good many others also, simply to show you that this is not a ridiculous error in Genesis that nobody in the light of these various considerations can say that this is a positive error. Now, I am not sure that we really know the explanation. Luther once said that he would give a great deal to the man that was clever enough to find the explanation. I don't think it's a matter of cleverness, however. I think probably we don't know all that is involved. And if we knew a little bit more, we might see the explanation here. But I think we do know enough to say that there is no positive error at this point. This is a difficulty. And we should be frank enough and candid enough to acknowledge that there are difficulties in Scripture. The more we study those difficulties, the more very often they go away. And as further knowledge comes to light, the more we realize that these difficulties do disappear. I don't think we can say that in this life we're going to have the answer to all the difficulties in the Bible. We aren't. There are these difficulties, and we must frankly face them. But it's one thing to say that there is a difficulty in the Bible that I do not understand, and it's something quite different to say that there is a positive mistake or error in the Bible. And the man who makes that latter statement arrogates to himself a knowledge that he does not really possess. I've simply given these as a few examples of the type of thing that is brought forth as an error in the Bible. Now, I believe that we must realize that in each of these cases we must first try to find out precisely what the Bible does say, and we must recognize that we do not always know all that is involved, that there are many difficulties that we cannot answer satisfactorily but that history has shown us that many of these difficulties have been explained more and more, that the critics have had to change their position, and we have not had to change our position with respect to the Scriptures. So it is a challenge to us all to study the Bible more deeply and more fully, but to remember that no one has ever been able to demonstrate the actual existence of error in the Scripture the reason being that the scriptures are the word of God. Thank you.